In the culture war, there are no winners, just podcasters. Only a few are willing to risk their lives in the face of some of the dumbest ideas to have ever captured human civilization. Every week, I, Megan Daum, along with my partner, Sarah Hader, humbly accept this mission in order to bring you conversations that are equal parts stunning, brave, and unhinged. Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan. I'm here with Sarah. We have an exceptionally stunning and brave guest in this episode. No, he's a little disappointingly on. Not and not unhinged. unhinged, actually. That's that was us. He's extremely rational. You guys know him, uh, Coleman Hughes, trombone writer, player, speaker, savant. Yeah, trombone player. He can do everything. Coleman can do it all. Yeah, he kind of just sits there. Although on this conversation, he just he just talks. This conversation is is notable too because it's in person. We did it in the studio, it, and it was also the first time that you and I met. It was. Mm-hmm. It was. We had just met like an, I think an hour before, not even like I had just come into the studio and that was us meeting for the first time. And then we then we sat down and we recorded this thing with Coleman and and, and it was it was great. I thought it was a great conversation. Yeah. It went on for a lot longer than we anticipated, which is always a good sign if you're going on for some time. Um, we covered a range of topics. Well, I asked him about his origin story. That was one of the things that I was interested. Um, I'm always curious how people kind of found their way to the heterodoxy. There's often some kind of catalyst. Um, in some cases, it's because somebody got in trouble. They they found themselves canceled in some way. Um, but that was not the case for him. Uh, so he has some um, his story there is quite, um, quite interesting. So talked about that. Um, what else? We talked a little bit about music. I think we talked a little bit about, uh, we talked about heterodoxy. We talked about dating, which was fun, um, with, with somebody like him. Yeah. Uh, I think it's easy for him to get dates. It's, but then he gets some weird dates. He has particular challenges specific to him. Uh, so anyway, it was a wonderful conversation, wide ranging, um, interesting, and we were all in person. So that was nice. So we hope that you guys will enjoy. Yeah. So here it is, our conversation with Coleman Hughes. How are you guys doing? Well, okay. how are you doing? Yeah. I'm great. Whose show is this? Who's interviewing who? So you thought it was your show. I thought it was my show. Let's just make it both of our shows. Well, you're the one in the beanie. That's so true. you must be the host. <laughs> I'm dressed in my podcasting uniform as a male. Did you only mandatory. start wearing a beanie when you started podcasting? Well, it's actually, you, you have to. It's part of the regulation <laughs> in New York to get your podcasting license as a man. They give you, they hand you your beanie Wait, you have at, a license? at the DMV. Yeah. Women, women aren't, we don't qualify for licenses yet. Not it's yet. Women Not in the podcasting world. Well, look, uh, did you see this article Recently, in the New York Times about why you should not date a podcast, bro. Yes, I heard about it. Yeah, yeah. There was a whole article about why saying you have a podcast is like the biggest turnoff for women in the dating market right now, and um, you should basically just stay away from podcasting guys. It was. I, thought I felt that was, very attacked. I felt very erased by that mm-hmm. article. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I saw that you tweeted that. I did. It was by a woman. Who was talking about how she dated a guy, but she 
forgave him for being a podcast or he didn't reveal that he had a podcast yeah. until they had been dating for a while. She catfished him <laughs> as a podcaster. She did? Or he catfished her rather <laughs> by saying he wasn't a podcast bro and then turned out to be a co- podcast bro and guys don't include it in their bio and I'm, what's all so this wrong stuff. about it? Like what Well, I I mean the idea is like if you have a podcast as a guy then you're Andrew Tate. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're a misogynist and you're horrible and um, you can't find the clitoris <laughs> and all this well, stuff. Well, <laughs> I mean, if you spend too much time podcasting, you can't find any human body part. I don't understand these kinds of like articles that are just one woman's dating experience, you know, like As she had a bad date and now it's an article. Yeah. And now we're it's all an article talk about, about the whole world. <laughs> and it's true about all of society yeah. because... On the other hand, I felt like in a way, maybe this makes it kind of dangerous and sexy to be a podcaster. Mm. It might actually backfire. Like if you tell women, oh, you should you, you shouldn't date this one type of guy. They're too dangerous. I feel like in a way that raises my yeah. capital. So what about like Michael Barbero and Ezra Klein? Like they're podcasters, right? Yeah. And they, so maybe this is like. But they're podcasters that them. Hard, like kind of hard signal their feminism. In, in some ways, I see. which yeah. so, so they wouldn't really be included in this, nor would I. I mean, I'm not like a shock jock podcaster type. But, but you already but you have like um, heterodox opinions like yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So actually, like one of the things I think like I was really curious about and wanted to talk to you about is, you know, what's what's it been like for you as a young guy in a very liberal, like liberal city mm-hmm. um, who is kind of a star in this heterodox space? Mm-hmm. And do people like do? Yeah. How, what's it like to like, is it hard for is it hard for him to get dates? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. So I have a girlfriend, but yeah. I was single for quite a while during this period of my life. And. I would, so like in New York City, it's not necessarily an advantage to be a writer and podcaster with the opinions that I have, Mm -hmm. because basically what would happen is this, I would go on a date, right? I would match with somebody on Tinder or Hinge, go on a first date and just be basically waiting for the shoe to drop in terms of, I Googled you. I saw you testify before Congress. I read your article for Quillette. I read your article for New York Times or whatever. I disagree with it. Why do you think racism doesn't exist? Which I've never said. Um, I had I had one uh, back when I was in college. This probably would have been closer to the time I, I met you like four or five years ago. I matched with a girl uh, at, at Columbia who went to Columbia as well. And she liked uh, a jazz group that I play in. She was like a huge fan of the Mingus Big Band, which is this uh, jazz group I've been playing in uh, downtown in New York since I was 16. So I was like, oh, wow, this is like amazing. Like she's already a fan of something. And it just came up naturally. And I happened oh, to wow. so I was like, oh, like this is going to be You're great. In. I'm in. <laughs> Easy money. So um, we were continuing to talk and Eventually, she says, oh, what else do you do? I say, oh, I'm a writer. She reads my article, says, sorry, I cannot go on a date with you because I can't be with someone. I I can't go on a date with someone who thinks racism isn't real. 
Oh, so so, it's a, it's a so did you did you decide to like disclose it then like right in the beginning? It's kind of it's kind of an ethical thing. Like it's like having an STD. Like should you disclose it? <laughs> yeah. Heterodox is kind of because like your opinions do spread through sex. That just yes. like STDs. A, That's yeah. true. Through exposure, definitely. Yeah. You could sure. probably yeah. be sued if you give your heterodoxy to somebody else without That's disclosing right. it first. Yeah. If you make someone a Republican, that's like a... All those people that I've turned on to the fifth column over the years, Oof. they could still come back and sue me. They could do a class action suit. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So wait, this girl, so you hadn't even gone on a date. We hadn't even gone on a date, but she was super excited initially to go on a date with me because I was like, like in this band that she loved, right? She said, I asked her like, oh, what is your favorite jazz group? And it happened to be... The one that I was wow. in, right? And not even that was enough to counteract the political ideology difference. On the other hand, being a, as a young man, having a career that is far more advanced than most young men my age is definitely appealing mm-hmm. to women. And like co- having my quote unquote shit together mm-hmm. to, to the degree that I do, whatever degree that is, mm-hmm. that's definitely, that was definitely a plus when I was single. So is a double-edged sword. So, but do you feel like uh, female podcasters are uh, are really hot? Like, would they be a big commodity or or no? It's kind of, is it like kind of, it's kind of like a turn off? To me or to? I don't know, just anybody generally. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Do you? It, it, yeah. It depends. Uh, it, it depends your persona when you're podcasting. Like, you could have a very attractive persona when podcasting. Well, not as a, no, as a woman. Not really. I think you could. <laughs> I think, think it's so? like it's like being a conservative woman, you know, like it doesn't really it doesn't harm you that much. It doesn't harm you the way. Right. You think men would like men. it. I have a friend, my friend, a very good friend of mine dates a, a female podcaster and she has a she has a big podcast. And um, I don't I've never gotten the sense that that's like a, a demerit. Right. Yeah. No. So but hetero, I feel like heterodox women would have an advantage because mm-hmm. the men would be relieved that they weren't going to be me too by her or something like that. This is probably true. I mean, I think it, it it's definitely a, a real, well, first of all, there's a huge gender component to political ideology, which I, my understanding is that it used to go in the opposite direction. Like women at one point were on average more conservative than men many, mm. many decades ago. And at least for younger Americans, that profile has flipped, mm. uh, which is interesting if true. But I do think it's if if I understand that somebody is if somebody says something on a first date that indicates to me that they're not like a censorious woke person that I definitely breathe easier. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like I, I remember another date I went on when I was in college and we tried to go to some restaurant, ended up going to Chipotle, which is whatever, not my best Look, it's college. It's, I'm amazed you would go to any restaurant. And as an undergraduate, you were like going to taking girls out to restaurants. Wow. And uh, like five minutes into it, we're talking about, oh, what what are you into? What am I? Blah, blah, blah. And she says, I'm um, I, I'm writing a thesis on the intersection of racism and capitalism. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> and enough. I was yeah, like, you got to get out of there. Oh, God. Am You're going to be t- me too by being in that room with her. Yeah. Like, it's too late that, almost. That's like am a I, mad I, lib. Yeah. Like, yeah, I am exactly. writing a thesis on the intersection between blank yeah. and blank. Intersection, like that word, it's one of those words. Like marginalized, mm-hmm. intersection. Yeah. Right. Like you, you see it anywhere and 
you know, that like they, they've absorbed the language. So they mm-hmm. probably absorbed the ideology yeah. and you just need to get out of there. I think it's like, I only dated for like, like I was only on the dating space for maybe like two months mm-hmm. before I got into another <laughs> long term relationship Locked and it down that's quick. it. And yeah, I'm, um, the dating space. That's hilarious. It's like the dating seed. The how that is so of our moment that you would call it that it would be called the dating space, dating universe, scene. the dating scene. scene. Okay, that's All what right, we dating said scene. in my day. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I so I and then I I signed up for um and a. a a website mm. like before there were apps where mm-hmm. there were just like online like dating websites and i put in atheist mm-hmm. and i remember at first i didn't i didn't add that in there i just put like not religious or something and then i changed it to atheist and i remember my inbox was suddenly flooded with like yeah. all these guys and then i realized oh there's like no women that are willing to put that on their yep. profile and there's like a whole horde of men that are like oh my god like yeah. so amazing wonderful wow yeah, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It was crazy. So I think that'd no, be I similar to being a heterodox woman. I think yeah. so. You know, like, because left-wing men aren't afraid of you and right-wing men aren't afraid of you. You right. know what I mean? Like, right. Right. If somebody puts their their pronouns in their profile, do you overlook that? Because I think sometimes men feel that they have to or they're so clueless. Like, if they're not aware of the stuff at all, if the app asks for the pronouns, they're just going to be like, oh, yeah, he, him, whatever. It depends what a man is looking for. If you're just looking for casual hookups, I think most men are pretty happy for you to, like, believe whatever. (laughs) Um, It doesn't matter. Like, I I have a friend. (laughs) This is one of my favorite stories. uh, One one of my best friends from college. He is a conservative, and he used to have a a picture of Reagan in his dorm room, right? Wow. But when he would bring a, a girl over, which was often in those days, he would... He would, he would turn it over. And, and it would so be a would, picture of Bernie Sanders. Exactly. And he'd get, like, get laid instantly. Yeah. But then if he liked a girl and it was like couple, they went on a couple dates, eventually he would choose the moment to like put it, like put reveal it back, himself to reveal her. himself and see whether he was accepted or not. Mm. And that was the crucial moment. But in those first few instances, I think most guys who aren't looking for something serious are just happy to say like, Oh, look, uh, you got pronouns in your brow. Maybe I'll make a little innocent joke about it. Cause like, I'm not trying to have a Socratic dialogue with you. So like, for example, <laughs> that <laughs> the, the girl that said story. she was into like the intersection of race, racism and capitalism. I remember I just had this moment where it was like, am I going to, am I going to tell her about all my critiques of the concept that racism and capitalism are linked from my hundreds of pages of reading and like furious 30 page self Google docs on this specific issue? Or am I just going to keep the peace and not, you know, not Not text her again? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I chose the second one because I was like, uh, now are these like white girls? This was a black girl. This This one happened to be a black girl. But do you have like, the other one was a white girl that, that, that uh, canceled on me. Do you think that you were tending to get like some woke white girls who wanted to date you because you were a black guy? A and little it, bit, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I that thought has been in the back of my head at times. Um, if I, I try not to, you know, like prejudge anyone, but I definitely do think that that's like a phenomenon. Because it would be a great like, feather in their cap. Of yeah, course, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And then lo and behold, you meet Coleman Hilarious. Hughes. You're waiting to get like this, like. <laughs> to piss your daddy like, off like, so and, then it's, and then it's Coleman Hughes <laughs> and then like, daddies would love you yeah exactly <laughs> their dads would love exactly. you yeah. Yeah. yeah 
Oh my gosh. I'm glad I don't have to deal with that. Oh my gosh. That sounds horrible. Yeah. To deal with Well, what? also because just as a woman, I don't think men care that much. Like regardless of if, so long as you accept their politics, like yeah. you tell me about how you feel about these. If that girl, the cap intersectionality of whatever racism, capitalism, woman, mm-hmm. um, if she said, you know what, this is what I think. It's cool what you think. Yeah. You know, I, I respect no, I wouldn't you. Care. you wouldn't I wouldn't mind, care. Right. It might mm. even be nice to have that kind yeah. of like a like a, a a deep bond and but have a difference of opinion. Yeah. Do you think you can handle that, though? Like if the person could you be long term with somebody who wasn't at least it would on really the same depend page? how they how saying in, in yeah. what in what um, style they held their opinions. Right. Right. And in what style they engaged. Yeah. I because I interviewed John McWhorter on my podcast yeah. a couple of years ago, and he was sort of recently divorced, uh-huh. and I and he was like dating, and I asked him like, could you mm. be in a relationship with somebody who wasn't like really into this stuff, mm. or like you know very much opposed to you? And and uh, I think he said, I, it's like. I don't want to be. I don't want to feel like I have to censor myself. Like I don't want to be walking on eggshells. And I and if I'm going to be like, you know, cooking dinner like, and having a glass of wine, I want to be able to like talk about my day sure. and mm-hmm. all the people who came after me. But that's or like whatever. a feature of modern society. I, th- I think people used to have disagreements in their relationship, but there was no sense that you had to censor yourself. Right. I mean, I know my parents growing up were very diametrically opposed on politics. Oh, my really? dad was more of like an Ayn Rand libertarian. Wow. And my mom was <laughs> literally a communist. My mom was a Marxist. She was reading Marx and Durkheim to me when I was five years old, like indoctrinating All right, me. That's child like abuse. Fox News' yeah. worst nightmare. It was great though. You know, she, she was reading Durkheim and yeah. Marx to you when you were five. What, Absolutely. Like, like, was it like Absolutely. So, that's how you produce somebody baby? like him? Was yeah, it, no, like, it was literally like was communist baby. Book? It was like communist baby. Did it rhyme? I mean, like with the pictures? <laughs> no, she was reading me like out of Das Kapital. I didn't know. Okay, this explains I still don't everything. Understand yeah. Das this explains. I think I understand. Yeah. Okay. Are you, like, did you, do you have siblings? Yeah, I have, I have two sisters. Yeah. And are they like this? Or are you just a freak in there? So like, are, are they into like, this stuff too? Are they like, um, are they heterodox? No, no. I mean, uh, one is, one is sort of democratic socialist, I would say, like AOC hmm. broadly. Um, and the other is kind of difficult to pin down. Hmm. Are you the oldest? No, I'm the youngest. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, so one of the things, so Sarah and I were talking about this. So one of the things we wanted to ask you is sort of like, what is your heterodox origin story? Cause I feel like everybody has something that mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. led them to, uh, thinking in a more counterintuitive way or anything like that. And you actually, I want to let you take this, but I did, I, I heard an interview with you where you were talking about something and I was like, that's what it is. And so you can answer and then I'll tell you what I think it I'll is. I'll tell you if it's, if it's the same thing I said that it's funny. I, I wonder if my story will be different because sometimes on different days you, you write a different well, narrative. You didn't say of your it life. was what you didn't say it was your origin story, oh, okay, but you okay. said something about your life. And okay. I thought that's why he is the way he is. So I think I would say two factors seem significant to me, significant. One is I grew up in a, in a very racially diverse town where I had friends of every race and I did not think of them as belonging to a race. Uh, and I naturally rebelled against the 
significance, I think, given to race later in life as a result of growing up in that way. Um, and secondly, I think as, as a teenager, my main passion was music and jazz in particular, which is extremely racially diverse and we're kind of like the army or something, you end up becoming extremely close friends with people of very different races and even other parts of the world. And that background being like my, my whole life, then being thrust into like a post 2014, um, great awakening era hotbed of wokeism at Columbia. Uh, and all these people telling me like, I'm a victim. Racism is everywhere. I bec- it, like it was a sudden. Um, it, it was a it was a level of concern about racism that was greater than what I experienced from my black family that grew up in Jim Crow. Like they, p- kids would be talking more pessimistically about society than my grandparents, and something seemed just like I, that. Like broke me. I just had to understand what is going on here because this is it was just an insane phenomenon um so and you were an undergraduate around this time 2014 yeah Yeah. wow yeah okay okay that's that answers part of the question okay what was your okay well this is i mean this i don't this curious okay i don't want to i was also bitten by a spider when i was 16 (laughs) really no that's my origin story (laughs) i was bitten by a vampire myself um no i heard you talk and i can't remember where this was so you your mom passed away right Mm -hmm. you lost Mm -hmm. your mom to Mm -hmm. cancer when Mm -hmm. you were a teenager 18 yeah okay i heard you talking about how she was like relying on alternative medicine Mm -hmm. a lot Mm -hmm. and i don't know what the situation was but like I was listening to you talk and I thought, and you sounded like a little bit like you were frustrated that she had maybe over relied on that or not gotten the sort of, you know, Western modern treatment that might've helped her. And I thought, I wonder if that is what is informing a lot of the like allergy to bullshit. I think, I think that's right. I mean, that's an aspect I, I often don't think about cause it's, it's painful, but yeah. Um, yes. My, my mom, got very deeply into alternative medicine um, probably around 2010. Um, she, she got cancer and then it went into remission and then she started getting deeply into alternative medicine, especially Ayurvedic medicine, which is ancient Indian mm-hmm. medicine. And um, it was really like her main passion in life and she got kind of deeper and deeper into it and more and more radicalized to the point where she changed her main doctor to this this guy who still has a practice in New York, actually, Dr. Ali, who has like very bizarre theories about he, you know, like, like he believes like all um all chronic diseases have the same cause, mm. which is like lack of oxygen metabolism in the cells and it can be solved by like deep breathing like anything from like lupus to cancer to diabetes like all of these have one cause and um so she got deeply into this guy and 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 this guy did not do did not believe in scans in in typical kinds of scans and um and so she started he he didn't run any tests on her right and mm. and as a result her her cancer came back 
you know, long before she detected it. And at that point, it spread to her skeleton. And and Mm -hmm. she only detected it because the way I remember it, at least, is because she she said she was in pain. And I told her to go to a chiropractor because it worked for my friend. Chiropractor did the normal scans any Western medical doctor would have done and found cancer all over her body, right? Where she had been going to this guy for years. And at the end of her life, uh, she felt uh, bitter and and um, in some sense betrayed that she could have lived longer had mm. she mm. had this guy been been better. And, and, um, and, and so I do blame... I do blame that for her premature death. Who knows how long she would have lived otherwise, but I definitely blame the um, uncritical, uh, the, the uncritical hatred of, you know, Western science, Western scientific institutions and all the rest for, for, for that. So, and, and I also feel there's a really strong value in just insisting on the truth Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all of that. So I think that's definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it seems to me like, you know, we all sort of have our areas, whether it's race or gender or free speech, like sort of, you know, free thinking movement has me- free thinking kind of ecosystem has many sort of like subsets of interest, but ultimately it's about hating bullshit, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, no matter yeah. what your particular bugaboo is, especially good sounding bullshit. Um, yeah. for years I couldn't, I could not bring myself to, uh, to actually look at that doctor. I couldn't bring myself for years to look into his philosophy and of the guy that was medicating my mom for years. And then some, sometime a year or two ago, I just I couldn't sleep one night for some reason. And I, I watched like a hundred of his Vimeo lectures uh, to understand his philosophy. And it was very, it was very difficult. The thought that my mother had been duped by this guy Mm -hmm. and that that had cost her potentially years of her life. Mm. Um, and, and this guy is a, he's a very kind of charismatic critic of Western medicine. And I see how, especially someone who's had trouble with the medical system, which is like a lot of people because mm-hmm. there are so many problems actually with um, our medical system. Someone who had bad experiences, horrible doctors, surgical errors, all kinds of crazy stuff can go to that yeah. extreme. But it nevertheless is extremely dangerous. And um, I definitely think that's a that's a part of my origin story. Did yeah. you ever reach out to him or like say I mean, I would have. I, I have so much bile for this person. Yeah. I like... I don't think that I want to, uh, I don't know that I could engage with him without wanting to destroy him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's hard. No, I was surrounded by like pseudoscience stuff, but it, it wasn't, you know, I guess maybe it's like a South Asian thing or like a non-Western thing, but you know, in, in, in Pakistan at least. And I think also like in India, it's like, there's a fusion of all kinds of different ideologies and people aren't thinking clearly enough to be like, this contradicts this, you know? So Mm. you maybe you go to, you know, homeo, like homeopathy, um, and you, you go to that kind of doctor and they give you some sugar pills and you go Mm -hmm. to a Western doctor, maybe if you have the money and then you take, you know, you see what they have to say and take whatever they have to give you. I don't know if like my parents ever saw it as 
necessarily something that contradicted in their minds. Mm -hmm. But I remember always having all these like little sugar pills, like, you know, like those, I don't know if you really, yeah. Yeah. Cause it was so, well, yeah, they're they're just sugar pills. That's all they are. That's all like that your parents gave you or that you would get from a doctor when you, they took you to a doctor? Both. Like they knew doctors um, who practice like homeopathy in Pakistan and also in the United States. They found like people who, who could do that. And I remember, you know, I was sick and they would give me these things and they tasted really good. Um, and I actually loved that medicine. So I would like pretend <laughs> to be like, I was like some sick. I need some. Yeah. Like, it was, it was just, it was like candy. And I remember one time I woke up in the middle of the night, my cousin was over, she was taller and I had her, I was like, let's go, let's go get some, like, let's go get some medicine. And we, <laughs> we went to the cabinet. I like, she held me on her shoulders. <laughs> we got like a big thing of medicine and like gorged on it <laughs> and nothing you happened. didn't think it you were going to have an overdose. That no, this I was like, I was like that, uh... four or five. Like, I was like a kid. <laughs> Um, and she was like not much older than me. And so obviously we just kids, you're going into the medicine cabinet and nothing happened. And years later I heard, you know, the, the, the phrase like the dose makes the poison. And I remember thinking, why wasn't that poisoned? <laughs> like, why did nothing happen to me? Like, oh, okay. Cause, cause there's no dose. There's mm-hmm. no, it's not medicine. Nothing, right. nothing there is working at all on any level. So did your parents know that they were sugar pills? No. No, they, they didn't were marketed think about it. as about it. something yeah. else. They, and they even and call them doctors. Placebo. So it's like doctor, whatever, you know, yeah. like who, you know, our local like doctor. Right. So in addition to the Western doctors, so they have Western doctors, but Western doctors are expensive. Like mm-hmm. those kinds of medical doctors are expensive, um, you know, both here and there. Uh, so this was like another alternative and you see what they have to say and you, you take and it can't hurt. That's yeah. what, that's what they, that's how they approached it. And yeah. it's amazing the power of placebo, placebo yeah. and mm-hmm. nocebo and just the power of suggestibility yeah. mm-hmm. in everyday life. It's just, it's incredible. Like uh, sometimes I think I, I have a, a bit of a complex about whether I get enough sleep. Mm-hmm. So like if I get, I only got like four hours of sleep last night. Me too. Um, and usually I feel fine right now, but usually when I, when that happens, I'm just in my head all day about oh, I'm not going to be at my best for this podcast, um, uh, you know, with Sarah and Megan. I only, why did I, why did I stay <laughs> yeah, up? How why dare did I, you? You only got I, four hours of sleep Exactly. For us? You know, why did I not plan better? So I got everything done, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that very line of thinking is part of what makes me feel bad, right? Like if yeah. you could somehow do an experiment where I have no idea how much sleep I got last night, I'm not sure I would detect feeling bad at all. I'd yeah. probably feel absolutely fine um i think pain has a lot pain is related to that as well just mm. like your mindset Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways um all these chronic illnesses that people Mm. have like Mm -hmm. long uh, long Uh, long i don't want to get in trouble maybe it's maybe it's real maybe it's real but there are so many like psychosomatic illnesses Mm -hmm. that become fads and people adopt them and think and they they begin to rule their lives and Mm. they begin to define themselves by this chronic illness that they have, the doctors can't pin down and, mm-hmm. you know, they don't, they don't know the real cause. They don't know what's, what's, what's happening here. And it just happens to be that people with anxiety disorders, like people who are generally yeah. of the nervous temperament are the kinds of people who gravitate towards having. They over-index for yeah. uh, mm-hmm. other ailments. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is, it, it, that's so interesting because to me, I mean, there is like, so there is a biological component at, at some point, you know, like there's some kind of person 
you know, through their, you know, genetic materials or whatever is predisposed mm-hmm. to be highly suggestible or like, you know, nervous. That was, that's what they used to call them. Nervous, mm-hmm. nervous disorders. Um, and now they have all these chronic illnesses mm-hmm. and it, it's pretty, it's amazing. Like their did communities. You, did you guys see uh, Ross Douthit's? Who's a great, my favorite New York Times he's columnist. He's my favorite too. I think he's the best. He's a fantastic writer. Yeah. So did you see his, I think it was uh, both a column and a book about his having long Lyme I didn't read it, but it's apparently really, no, really excellent. It was very compelling yeah. because I agree with everything you just said about like, you know, the suggestibility of, and I'm also skeptical of, you know, how many people who think they have long COVID really have long COVID as opposed to you feel shitty and tired for the normal reasons. And you saw that on the news and now that's the thing you blame. Um, that's a real phenomenon. But uh, Ross Douthat wrote about how he started, you know, in middle age having these, this cluster of shitty symptoms, which is just like all the shitty symptoms you can have. And uh, he would go to doctors and many doctors would like doubt that it was a real thing because I think it is somewhat controversial whether long Lyme disease is a real illness or a psychosomatic mm. illness. And the difference between those two may be somehow conceptually not unimportant, right? Because if you can think your way into really feeling bad, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and he and what's interesting about it is, is that Ross is a very rational guy, I would say, other than his probably commitment to extreme Christianity and God. Yeah, other than his extreme I know that sounds funny. Um other than other than the fact that he murders a lot of guys, that's a very nice <laughs> yeah, guy. He, he no. eats uh, rosemary focaccia baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Baby flatbreads. Yeah, but no, he is um, he's he not is the very, usual suspect exactly, for this kind that's of That's exactly thing. what yeah. I mean. Yeah. So the fact that he was really on the side of you know, take people's illnesses seriously because, and don't dismiss them as psychosomatic was a very interesting angle for me and kind of pushed, pushed my views around Mm. on it. And he had, he had even tried strange things like light therapy or sound therapy, kind of like woo Mm -hmm. stuff. And some of it worked or or one crucial thing actually reduced his pain. And at the end of the day, if you have pain for whatever reason and you do X and pain goes away, you're going to keep doing yeah. X. Yeah. No matter yeah. how scientifically grounded you are, mm-hmm. I don't care if you read 10 peer review studies saying light therapy doesn't work. Yeah. If it makes the pain in my lower back go away, I'm in there. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's an interesting conversation. I think the Lyme disease, I tend to be more... I, I believe that more mm. than other things. I mean, I, mm. I certainly I know many people who've struggled with that and mm. they're mm. not yeah. necessarily people. That it could be I mean, it could be a that. bit of both, too, yeah. because there's something that happens like conceptually when you like, let's say you have like a tingle here and like a you know, problem here and then you you look it up. And then you find out that there's a name, you know, like there's a, there's a condition Mm -hmm. and there's all these other symptoms. And then you think, huh, you know what? I am also feeling this and this and this. And it's, I think, you know, I don't want it to, to, I don't want it to come across like these people are stupid because Mm -hmm. not only do I think that I could fall for this, like I know that I have fallen for Mm -hmm. this, you know, Mm -hmm. to just to see a list of things that kind of match in my brain, which is like this pattern matching machine is sitting there. I have this. Mm -hmm. Now I feel all the other symptoms too. Mm -hmm. And it's 
you know, and I think that there's something about the mind body connection there, which not to sound woo, that sounds woo, mind body connection. Yeah, but, we're going to bleep that like, out. Clearly please. there's something, clearly something's going on that we can suggest ourselves into totally. feeling really, really terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, how, and vice versa. You can, you like, you can suggest yourself into feeling amazing. Yeah. So when, you're, when you're, when you're, and when you're around people that feel amazing and it's contagious, like emotions and states of being are contagious at some level. Yeah. yeah. I, I once read like this article. Um, it was like going around like my Twitter circles was this guy who was like, actually you don't need any kind of, you don't need a lot of sleep. Everyone's it's all BS. And you only need to, I, I lived on like four hours of sleep for like this, amount of time and he like logged it and he wrote about it and it was very compelling and he was a smart person. Therefore that's true for everyone. And well, (laughs) you know, I read that and I remember like for a few days afterwards, like even when on the days where I got four hours of sleep, I was like, you know what? I'm fine. And I felt fine. What if if they came out and said, Oh, you know what? The research is now showing that nobody needs more than four hours of sleep. Like this has all been, Mm -hmm. um, uh, this has been incorrect Mm -hmm. and going forward. This is all you need. I bet people would get used to it. I think a surprising number of people might. Um, although that four hours of sleep thing, if, if Matthew Walker, that, that sleep expert, guy that wrote that big book a few years ago if he's right there's just a certain gene that governs that and certain Mm -hmm. people just have the super sleep gene yeah Yeah. where they feel as good on four as the rest of us feel on eight yeah and are those people like you know tech billionaires and ceos those are no they're i mean they're they're like but they're productive or they're up in their mother's basements playing call of duty until (laughs) five hours yeah yeah yeah. um my husband's like that he's like a super he can survive on like five hours good he's good i I could I could sleep for ten mm-hmm. if you let me. If nobody woke me up and I had nothing to do, yeah, I could me sleep too. for ten. Me too. But this gets into like the social contagion issue, which touches on trans and gender dysphoria, but is also just in its own right one of the most interesting yeah. phenomena. Well, we don't talk about that. You don't talk about that. We don't at talk all. about trans. Yeah, no, I heard you, you don't do. Yeah, no, I know. No. I heard that's the one topic you avoid. We're on your not, podcast. We're not just not interested yeah, in it. Yeah. So I don't want to drive you in there. No. But um. But no, like there are what's interesting to me is like forget the topic of gender dysphoria for a moment and just think about social contagion in general. There are these fascinating cases where a whole, you know, school develops, say, like hiccups. Yeah. Or Tourette's. Or Tourette's. There was a case. There's been several cases. Yeah. The the TikTok Tourette's where suddenly there's a spike in Tourette's. Doctors all over the country saying, what the hell is going on? Um, is it something that's in the water? Is it something? And the only thing that explains it is all the new cases of Tourette's have TikToks and follow influencers who have Tourette's. And I've seen some of these influencers. It's actually very interesting content for someone to let you into their Tourette's tick. Mm. But then it becomes this status thing of like, yeah. they're cool because they have this tick. And oh, like maybe I, maybe I, I sometimes stutter. Maybe that's like, and then it develops into a thing. And people fixate on it. And there may even be a, a comp- a, an autism component, too, where people more likely to fixate because they have Aspie or, or autistic right. tendencies can can go deeper down certain rabbit holes and ways of being mm-hmm. uh, and are less flexible and maybe yeah. take things more literally. Um, and... And so you see that, you know, like hiccups outbreak at some school, I think it was Massachusetts or something. Um, hiccups? Is yeah, there a hiccup a, TikTok? There was a hiccups. But is there a hiccup I don't know if they've done community? a collab. No, I don't think hiccup, hiccups in 
TikTok have have linked up. Okay. But there was a hiccups outbreak at a school, at one school. <laughs> it was either Massachusetts or Delaware, I forget. And they literally, they were literally looking at: is it something in the water supply in the yeah. town? Is it something? Yeah. In the, and it was just a kind of spontaneous emergent phenomenon and that, and it, for some reason, they tend to hit young women the worst, yeah. more than young men and more than adults in general. Yeah. So when you take that background and then you look at the the, the facts, which I know you've you know talked about on your podcast of the wild spike in the number of natal female. Yeah. Uh, identifying as as gender dysphoric as opposed to yeah. natal males, which have gone up a little, but it's not. Gone. I see more and more that natal, natal males. Yeah, uh, yeah. In this, but I, I remember seeing like at least in I think it was the American Plastic Surgery Association. This is from Abigail Schreier's book, but I checked it and it seemed it seemed legit. Uh, w- which was that there was like a four hundred percent spike in natal female. Four thousand. Four thousand. Really? There was. I heard for. Well, I think there was data out of the UK. Maybe Tavistock. Um, Yeah, four thousand percent increase in natal females um, going to gender clinics. Yeah, uh, for some form of dysphoria. But I mean, you could dysphoria is a very broad term, so that could mean any number of things. But yeah, right. So there was a there was a single year where there was like there was like a fourfold difference in the increase for natal females as opposed to natal males, which. Which is interesting because if the theory is, oh, we're all just becoming less bigoted against trans people, so trans people are coming out of the, you know, coming out of the closet essentially, that would seem to affect both genders equally. Yet there's this huge disparity, which definitely lends itself to a social contagion element for sure. Even if there isn't, if that's not the whole explanation, um, there's definitely an element. And that's a good like almost an an axiom that anytime you see a wild, like an explosion of young women participating in anything, um, uh, especially if it's, if it's like a medical thing or, you know, it somehow distinguishes themselves from them, from, from everyone else. It's maybe start thinking about it as, as social in some, in some form. Because it's women, but is there some, is there some personality trait? Like women are higher in, like, what are those categories? Like there's like, neuroticism and all these, what do they call like the big five traits yeah, or something? Yeah, the big five personality traits. So is traits. there one of those traits that are like make women more susceptible or are we more? I think is we're just, empathy, we're social. Like, yeah, we're social it, it thinkers. Because yeah. yeah. like, we're like absorbing, sort of emotionally yeah, yeah. absorbent. Maybe empathy, yeah. Because yeah. if you are actually feeling what the people around you are feeling, yeah. then conditions can spread, right? Psychological yeah. conditions can literally spread. Right. Yeah. That's Sarah. Thank God, Sarah and I don't have any empathy. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't be I here. I do feel like, a, I feel so like not female in this sense. In the, in the empathy sense? You are just oh, like, 100%. I would never be like, mm. I see something like that and it makes me less interested in having anything to do with it. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sympathetic to a lot of people. Like I'm, I'm a sympathetic person. I can, you know, like I have compassion for other people, but I don't, I don't absorb their, their feelings. Well, let me turn that question back on you. What are your heterodox origin stories? Like what do you attribute it to in each of your cases? Well, we know Sarah's. Yeah. Because she was, I don't feel like she was a religious fundamentalist. No, I wasn't a religious fundamentalist. I was like, (laughs) what? Yeah. What? But yeah. She she was um, I was a religious person. Yeah. Like religious. Yeah. I was religious. Um, I started questioning religion when I was 15. Mm -hmm. 
And I left like soon after, mm-hmm. like it didn't take long at all, mm-hmm. but I had been thinking like a thinking person thinking deeply about, you know, values and, but it, most importantly, like what's true in the world, mm-hmm. you know, and like, how can we know it? Mm-hmm. And the arguments that worked really well for me and there was no going back where, you know, some of like the, the logical contradictions of Abrahamic beliefs specifically. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, and then I left Islam. Well, I left religion. I stopped believing in God and then I stopped believing in Islam um, as a consequence. And, you know, cause a lot, a lot of women, they talk a lot about women's issues when it comes to Islam, right. Mm-hmm. When it comes to ge- gender problems, hijab mm-hmm. and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But for me, like, I'm such a, I don't know, jihadist at heart, but it's like, for me, it's like, um, Here's what I mean by that. But I, I mean that if if the Quran is true, then the moral, you know, universe like that the Quran inhabits, like that's that's true. We have to accept that even if we don't understand it, even if it seems like oppression, we don't know. Mm. God knows mm-hmm. by definition. Mm. So we have to we have to accept the morality as well, like mm-hmm. that that the Quran comes with. So for me I had no problem like kind of just accepting it. If I thought the objective claims were true. Right. Once I started doubting those, everything else fell apart very quickly. Then it was an easy thing to just like sort of give up. Um, But that I think I was always a skeptical person, like always. And I think in one way or another, I would have ended up here. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there was like a point at which I became the, you know, like without which I wouldn't have been here. I think I would have Mm -hmm. been here regardless. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe I'm just a little bit more extreme. So what, so I think you and I definitely have in common that, that cast of mind that would really want to know whether something is actually true and take that to its logical conclusion. And that might just be like personality, almost, almost hardwired. Yeah. But if there were any aspects of your experience, uh, are there any ex- aspects of your experience that, that you think explain the fact that you really cared about sharing your way of thinking with the world? Because mm. many people with that cast yeah. of mind would say, okay, I'm going to go do finance or do yeah, whatever. And yeah, now I've yeah. decided religion's not true, but you took it upon yourself to put yourself out there yeah. in a very, especially very heated time for the issue and a very heated issue and, and, you know, throw your, rep- your reputation in even yeah. a very vulnerable way. What do you think account- accounted for that? Um, I don't know if it was any, you know, specific experience, but I, you know, I grew up in Pakistan, like somewhat, like we were better off there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, I went to a nice school, I had nice things and, you know, I came to the United States and I, we had nothing all mm-hmm. of a sudden because my parents came when they were older. They didn't speak very good English. So their skills were not transferable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, without understanding the language or the social atmosphere, you really have a tough time um, getting back to the same place mm-hmm. that you were when, you know, where, where you started from. Um, and so I was catapulted into like, I don't want to, cause it wasn't poverty, but it was definitely lower income America mm-hmm. um, and starting to see how people lived um, the first kind of um, campaign, I guess, of injustice that that you know I I took on internally was class based, mm-hmm. you know, because I remember seeing um, my neighbors. I remember seeing how um, the, the kind of invisible ways that they were getting tripped up, mm-hmm. and how unfair it seemed that my friends who had a lot of money 
um, we're deaf and, and not necessarily more ability or, or anything else or more talent, innate skill or even intelligence, um, but that they were definitely going to do better because mm-hmm. they were set up in all these like important ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I became kind of a, a social justice warrior, but mm-hmm. like, you know, like, but in terms of class yeah. and I remember wanting to, uh, become a lawyer and work with like these like lower income people and immigrants mm-hmm. and all this. And it was, um, like really important to me to, to, to be somebody who made a change in the world. Um, and my atheism only increased that feeling because mm-hmm. then, it, then it was like, oh, there's only ever this life. So if we don't have justice here, we're not going to have it anywhere else. There is no like heaven to to make it all better and to make your sufferings here mm. meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to try and and make things better here. Mm. Oh wow, that's so interesting. So yeah. like, there's no second act. No. So is that why you like didn't go to law school, for instance? You just like I have one chance. I'm going to do this. I mean, you could still go to law school. I could still go to law school. The podcasting thing. You know, it was just, um, you know. It, I don't, I don't know if I have like so much of a plan in life as in, you know, it, in any given moment, a different conception, um, not an entirely different, but maybe a different conception of what's the lever that I can pull that will make right. the biggest, what's the one lever that I can pull um, that will make the biggest difference. And there was a point where that was law school. And then there was a point where it's, okay, no, I can start this nonprofit organization and I can make a big difference here. And now it's a podcast. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, we're difference makers. That's why we're doing this. We're we, heroes. We want to help the really. poor. <laughs> Are we heroes? I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, martyrs. <laughs> I consider myself a martyr from d- doing this. Did you see um, in Prince, Prince Harry's memoir, there's, there's a passage where he, he was doing something and he said, and then uh, someone used the word hero to describe me. No. And I would have none of it. No. <laughs> you like, read really? Prince Harry's memoir? No, no, no. no I, just saw, I saw an excerpt. And I thought to myself, what What a disingenuous. Really, If you really had none of it, I would, you I wouldn't, wouldn't have put it in your fucking tell memoir. You, it's like I give, I give anonymously. Yeah. I, I would of like you to know I'm an anonymous donor. People have said yeah. about you, you cherry picked this one and said, oh, but I would have none of it. But you have to put it in your book. Oh, my God. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What What's your origin story? You know, um, it's so I really think it comes down to this hyper awareness of bakery and affectation. And I sort of was hyper aware of virtue signaling before there was a term for it. Mm. So my family is very interesting, actually. So I come from a family of musicians. Oh, cool. And my fa- my father is a trombone player, actually. No way. <laughs> wow. What, yeah. uh, jazz or classical? Yeah, Everybody? jazz. Yeah, nice. There's not a lot of classical trombone, I guess. I mean, there's not. A symphony orchestra. Great symphony. Sure yes. When did the trombone actually come into existence? It was originally called the sack butt. Don't laugh. The sack butt. Yes, the sack butt, which is a German word. <laughs> I said don't laugh. It's a... V- <laughs> It's the history of my instruments. I can't that, that, not- <laughs> that should be the name of your podcast. Yeah, the sack butt the sack with butt Coleman podcast. Hughes. And it was a, it's a. I think I want to say, I want to say the seventeenth uh, or eighteenth century. Oh, okay. Um, so it's an old instrument. I think it's older than the than than the trumpet. It's such a simple instrument. Yeah, it's much older than the saxophone. Um, and even a oh, little bit. Oh, the saxophone is yeah. pretty new. Yeah. Yeah. So, um. 
But you so I mean, yeah, trombone is in every symphony. Okay. Most symphony Because it's not like a pieces. Baroque instrument, though, for instance. It was, I think, uh, what era would the Baroque be? Well, the Baroque be? would be, I mean, like Bach, Handel. I mean, there, because there were brass instruments in that time, but you don't see. Yeah. Maybe the trombone was just sort of configured. Obviously, it was must have been configured differently. Yeah, I don't know if it was relevant in that, in that time. Right. Yeah. Um, so I was an oboist anyway. So, I see. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, And there's Baroque oboe, which is mm-hmm. its own slightly different version. Anyway, but um, no, my, what's oh, that? Well. Beautiful instrument. I think. Thanks. <laughs> it's not the bassoon, when by the way. Well. I know when played you, well. When played well. Yes. Yeah. One of my very early pieces uh, when I was, that I published when I was in my twenties was this uh, essay called music is my bag. Mm. And it was about the kind of um, culture of band people and mm. like scholastic musicians. Yeah. And the way, like, in my day, there would always be the kid that had, like, the scarf, the piano key scarf, like the black and white yeah. piano key scarf. Mm. And you would, like, walk into the band room and the kid would always be playing Billy Joel on the piano, like the beginning of Angry Young Man. Like, mm-hmm. there were just – this was of in my in my time. So – but actually, this does speak to your question because – I, for a variety of reasons, was totally obsessed with the space between, like, what actually existed and what people were pretending existed Mm -hmm. and, like, what people actually were and what they were sort of trying to be. So not my dad so much. I mean, my dad was a very eccentric person, very contrarian, very critical, but just was totally un unfiltered like Mm. we would be going to it there was this french restaurant that he loved to go to and in new york and there was often a a piano player like a guy playing piano in the restaurant and one time we went there and it was a different guy it was a substitute piano player Mm -hmm. and we were walking out of the restaurant and my father literally goes up to the guy. He's like, you know, you're just not a good, you're not a very good player. Like, where's the other, where's Ralph? Because like, I don't know what you're doing here. Like my father would routinely behave that way. Did real life okay. Larry David. So was, he, yeah. was he autistic or was, yes. was I'm yes, sure okay. he was like a fairly high functioning autistic, but he was so insanely almost savant like about music. He was mm. an orchestrator and he was an arranger. Mm. And so he was incredibly good technician and could hear anything. Like we'd sit down and read a musical score and actually be able to hear it in his head. Mm. So, so he had this like kind of weird, quirky, eccentric, but like very d- deep kind of aesthetic life. And my mother, on the other hand, so my and my parents had met there from Southern Illinois, which is like really that is sack butt USA. That is like <laughs> butt USA. OK. And they were very conscious. My mother especially was very conscious of striving and getting out of that kind of cultural sphere. And she sort of attached myself attached. Wow. That was a Freudian slip. Attached herself, not myself, oh. to uh, my father who was using like academic channels to try to ascend. So he had been, um, he actually ran the jazz band at the university of Texas, uh, when I was a kid. And, um, that's kind of a famously good band. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he was like made no friends and didn't get tenure because he Mm. couldn't play. He couldn't get along with everybody. Mm. Couldn't play with Mm -hmm. others. Uh, but my mother was just, then we moved to New Jersey and she was just absolutely obsessed with, coming across as if we were incredibly sophisticated, wealthier than we were. We were not at all. I mean, my father, he flunked out of academia and then with no job whatsoever, we like got a moving truck and drove to New Jersey so he could like 
somehow make it as a musician in New York. It was mm. extremely ambiguous. Um, and my mother just was like really put on a lot of airs. And so as her children, our job was to sort of go along with it. And so I think that there was just, I, I'm very aware of myself as a teenager of like, pretending as if like acting mm -hmm. like a child. Like I wasn't even a child. I was playing the role of a child. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a teenager, but I was performing. I sound like Judith Butler. I performed <laughs> adolescence. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of it, I think that a lot of my, uh, where I ended up landing was I, I'm just constantly observing people's behavior and thinking that they're phony, mm -hmm. which I think is actually I'm not right about it all the time. Mm. Like most mm. people probably are just being themselves, but by the time the kind of extreme social justice virtue signaling rolled around, I was so massively allergic to it mm. that I couldn't help but speak out about it. But the fact is that, I mean, I've been, I've been a professional writer for 30 years and yeah. I've been writing about this stuff and observing this stuff yeah. for decades. Mm. Like nothing has really changed. Um, but what's interesting is that like, when I started off as a writer, I was saying all the things that I say now, but it was praised back then. And yeah. you were writing for mainstream magazines and editors loved you. And that was the job. And now, and now it's podcaster. the opposite of it. Like now yeah. all those publications that embrace me for yeah. saying these things, I'm persona non grata. So, so you have like a, who's the main character of Catcher in the Rye? Oh, Holden okay. Caulfield. Everybody's a, a little, phony. Yeah. <laughs> you have a little Holden Caulfield. In yeah. You. I mean, although he, that kind of, uh, I feel like that, that character it's Salinger is, um, is, is making fun of that kind of person. Like mm -hmm. there is a phoniness to, mm -hmm. to Holden's awareness of phoniness. So. But there's, there's, it's, it's, it's a blurry line, right? Like there's, there's people who are deliberately putting on airs. And they're, yeah, they have to be one, like manipulated enough, intelligent, socially intelligent enough to notice that there's a way, proper way to behave that's going to elevate me to this next level and um, uh, willing to be kind of dishonest enough to sort of put it on. So there's that, that like pure phony, um, maybe a narcissist, you know, like those kinds of people, like who are very manipulative, like socially. Well, that's social like a sociopath people. at right, some right, point. Yeah. Right. right. Um, so there's, there's that. And then there's like all these shades in, of, of gray in between where people pick up, you know, as we were talking about, like where people pick up ideas from mm -hmm. the air, you know, they mm -hmm. absorb them through their skin mm -hmm. and then begin to behave in ways that are not, you know, them, like quote unquote mm -hmm. them, like who they really are um, without even recognizing that that's what's happening. And I think that's what's so, bizarre and creepy about like the, the present moment. Yeah. I became a writer because I wanted to say what I actually thought mm -hmm. it was an authentic, it, it was an expression of authenticity. Yeah. That was the absolute essence of the job mm -hmm. and the only reason that it interested me. Mm -hmm. And so it's just maddening and extraordinary that we've yeah. come to this point where it's like the opposite of the job mm. Yeah, to, in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. And, and that it speaks to like a moral, like correctness, like to be the kind of person who is, who is good enough to see things for what they are and then say, no, here's how they, here's how they should be in a, you know, right. in this perfect social justice world. Um, I find it, I don't know, like, it's just, it's frightening. Um, it's disheartening like, to me because I'm a very, like, I'm a sincere person because I'm autistic, not because I'm like, 
Like, I thought I'm you so were good. autistic. Like, I'm so, you I'm said you were. I'm autistic-ish. You keep changing your... No, 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 you, no, 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 no. Because there's it's a spectrum. I know. But I said the other day on the podcast, do you think you're autistic? And you said no. Not in a way that a psychologist would be like, yeah, she's autistic. But there's autistic traits, I found. I read up a lot okay. about this. I think um, I have some autistic traits, too. Yeah. I'm not... This is... I'm not... I would no say so too. I mean, so I remember someone uh, DM'd me on Twitter and said, "I think you're autistic. I'm I'm very autistic. I think you're autistic. Are you autistic? Uh, take this test. Uh huh. And I took the test. <laughs> An online test. Yeah. Which like multiple choice. Yeah. I don't remember. It was some long test, and I came out to be roughly like as close as you could get without being yeah classified that That's way. That's perfect. That's, That's a good a way to be, spot. I guess. Yeah, I think so. Because I, I have no trouble. I've, I also just I have no trouble with the things autistic people t- typically have trouble with, like yeah. reading faces. I've, I have yeah. no trouble yeah. understanding what someone's feeling and all of that. I've never found that to be difficult. I occasionally mostly. have trouble with that. I feel like I occasionally have trouble yeah. intuiting other people's mindsets. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes I struggle with that. And I, I have to have somebody explain to me, like, what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. But mostly I can get, but like, what would be an example what could, <sighs> that someone has to explain to you what's going on? No, no. I mean, I mean, in, in specific scenarios, like let's say a big drama is going on among friends, you know, and people are fighting and I don't understand what's going on. Why are they fighting? Why are they behaving this way? Um, and then my husband will like kindly <laughs> explain to me like what's going on. Don't mansplain to you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not, it's not always a hundred percent intuitive. Right. Uh, but you know, I really related to what um, I heard Robin Hansen. Have you, do you know of who he is? Yeah, absolutely. He's like the yeah. elephant yeah. in the brain guy. He wrote this book. Uh, great, uh, great book. Yeah. Um, great book. That you would like as a hatred like it. of phoniness. It's basically like a it. oh, deep exploration of phoniness in every aspect of yeah it's like human phoniness like in, oh. yeah it's a very but um, rigorous nice yeah okay. so it, it um he is somebody who's like kind of on the spectrum i don't know if he identifies that way but he definitely is I definitely would, um, i would not um, surprise me and he he was i remember hearing him talking somewhere and he was saying that you know as somebody who thinks a little differently he would go into this like social world and social situations and not really understand why people were behaving the way they were behaving. Like clearly mm-hmm. there's another element, like there's another, there's something else. There's invisible strings that are, you know, that he cannot perceive at all because of his like difference, like mm-hmm. the, you know, neuro atypicality. And that kind of made him a really interesting, like social, like theorist and like so- somebody who would go into this social psychology because yeah. It's invisible to you. You have to find a reason and an explanation. And so his like very explicit reasons are very different than the reasons we give ourselves mm-hmm. when we do certain things, no, you know, our right. motivations. I mean, if you're like very not autistic and very effortlessly tapped into social norms, you have no reason to create an explicit model of yeah. what social norms are. Yeah. Whereas if you're very autistic, like may- maybe, I don't want to say that Robin Hansen is for sure, but um s- someone like him then you m- you you will become extremely curious and want to discover the nature of social norms right like, that's all you yeah, do like yeah. physicists yeah, want yeah. to discover the, the laws of the universe and yeah. if you're very smart you can actually come up with a, a, an outsider's perspective mm-hmm. on the social world in a way that is extremely interesting yeah um so i i don't i don't think that i've ever really suffered like that problem, but I think whatever aspect of 
autism like f- can can get you to really fixate on logical consistency mm-hmm. and not taking certain uh, uh, shibboleths for granted. I think I, I have some, and that's why maybe some autistic people yeah. relate to me. But, yeah, but I don't. I've never right. had like, well, the social. Well, and are in this space. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, totally. But what you just described, this very principle. It flies in the face of the standpoint epistemology, right? So, mm-hmm. like, I think you're absolutely right that you, as an out, if you are an outsider looking at a phenomenon, you are able to diagnose various aspects of it. You can see it more clearly. And yet, we have this whole school of thought that says you're not allowed to speak to anything unless you are part of the group right. that you are speaking about. Yeah. So, ask, you know, what, ask trans people about mm-hmm. trans mm-hmm. and stop right there. Right. I mean, is that not sort of like we should only ask cancer patients yeah. about how to die, about how to treat cancer? I'm not comparing trans to cancer. That's mm-hmm. just, I'm, I'm not, but like, it's just seems it's, we're in this bizarre moment where there's an, there's like a sort of, a, there's an obsession with being an outsider yeah. and yet you're not allowed to comment about anything if you are an outsider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, it's fat. It's fascinating. I think one analogy of a friend made to me that always stuck with me was, um, that people who grew up during the great depression and really lived that poverty and unemployment and crisis often later in life, they would just keep their money in mattresses mm-hmm. at, to their own oh, detriment, yeah. Yeah. losing yeah. money to inflation yeah. oh, and et cetera. My grandparents, right? Generation, absolutely. So it's like their lived experience of being living that actually gave them a distorted view mm-hmm. of what they should be doing later in life, mm-hmm. right? Because of and and that that goes to your point of yes, the lived experience of being in a group it can give you way more like tangible knowledge of like what what it is to be in that group, but. If you are unable to kind of apply an external lens, you may also be missing a lot. Yeah, a yeah. limiting belief. Yeah. 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 So yeah. you get to, to really learn about stuff like you want to incorporate the external yeah. smart view and the internal lived yeah. view. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel think. like we should bring back like old school like anthropology, you know. But <laughs> like you know, because there place, is something but like for, for <laughs> like, like modern America. Yeah. And take and notes in a notebook. Yeah. Yeah. And, like yeah. going to Williamsbury, like doing ethnographic interviews of the hipsters. Yeah. The hipsters believe that if you <laughs> Oh, I thought you meant Colonial Williamsburg, but yes. No, no. They should <laughs> They should rename Williamsburg Brooklyn Colonial Williamsburg. Yeah. Because there, I mean there yeah. so there is like two Steel man, I guess the the opposition. There is something about being in a particular environment that exposes you to information that mm. otherwise would be less visible. Yeah. You know, so it's not not oh, invisible, but obviously less visible. So I get that. You know, I totally get that. And I have I run into that a lot when I talk about class issues because there's now I'm in this social environment where like I don't know anybody who you know, it qualifies as like a lower income American, you know, mm-hmm. or, and they're like extremely highly educated people, like mm-hmm. at the tippy top of American society. And sometimes when we talk about specific like economic issues um, or class-based issues, there are whole like realms that are invisible to them that they don't see because they're not, they're not familiar with these people. They don't see that their day-to-day lives and, yeah. you know, the, the kinds of, the kinds of things that they deal with. Um, and it comes across and it shows, you know, like mm-hmm. even when, when we were having the conversation, what, a couple of weeks ago about, um, why, you know, like poor people having kids and like rich people, oh, yeah. people like, we had that conversation. Um, uh, 
I had I that led me to having another conversation with somebody else about about the same thing. And she was just like, well, I don't you know, I, poor people like, you know, they, how can they afford more kids? Like there's all this like time that has to go into it. And I was like, but poor people have tons of time. And mm-hmm. she was like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, you can't when you're actually, actually poor, you have nothing you can do on a Saturday besides like the free stuff, like go to the park, like you're a family, you know, you go mm-hmm. to the park, you go to a free museum, you go to the public pool. That's free. Um, you know, you go to the library, that's it. You know, me, my friends, we go to vineyards, we go to whatever new restaurant and try it out. Like there's a lot of, there are options on a Saturday that somebody who is like low income, like really legitimately doesn't have, you wouldn't know that until mm-hmm. you were, really like like as an anthropologist like becoming one of them becoming mm-hmm. a native you know living their life truly but but having said all that i think it is important to have that anthropologist that has like that distance emotional distance especially mm. that distance from like the symbolic meanings that a culture develops over time and accepts and you you don't know those symbolic meanings you don't those cultural meanings you haven't adopted them you can create new ones mm-hmm. yeah absolutely that's why i i mean i remember one of the early uh, blog posts that I wrote sort of before I really started writing for Quillette years ago was explaining affirmative action to a Martian because I just thought it was, <laughs> it, it would, it's, it's an interesting and useful exercise to explain something to a fictional being yeah. that has zero social context and takes nothing for granted except for logic. Yeah. And um, it's also hilarious. It's like a, it's just like a very, funny premise, uh, to do in, in, in any situation. And, and maybe at some level, the, like the sweet spot is to be someone that is from within a culture, but has just enough of, uh, the autistic mode of thinking that they, they can adopt the external view. Cause then you sort of get a bit of the benefit of both worlds. You get like, I know, I know enough about this culture from having lived in it for 20 years, but I can also step back and observe it as if from afar. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's, that may account for like it, yeah. it, you with Islam and me with American political blackness in some way um, yeah. may account for our, our success as uh, observers and, and critics. Do you ever think about just how much of people's worldviews are shaped just by their own particular experience? I feel like the majority of kind of arguments I get into with people, it's because they are objecting to something that somebody said because it doesn't align with their Mm -hmm. very personal experience. And I'm totally guilty of this too, Mm -hmm. but it's like, it's impossible to get around. Like we've talked about the having kids thing. Like we've talked about like, you know, should you, is it, are people not having big families because of X, Y, or Z? And then the amount of people who write to me and I'm sure to you and say, well, that's not true because I I have this or my, this, the anecdotal evidence is so overwhelming to many people, but I think I'm guilty of it too. Like I make all sorts of sweeping generalizations about people's social lives or, you know, how so they want to live. It helps to be able to, like, I think the the way that you can crawl out of that 
the one or not entirely, but maybe maybe there's a path out is to look at the numbers of the things, you know, look at how people actually behave, which it's like think like an economist, like look almost, at the data. you know, yeah. like think like an economist. And what does that tell you? Like, how do people actually behave that kind of like behavioralist, you know, uh, you know, um, economic analysis is very, very fascinating to me. And it's also bizarre because, you know, it makes you feel uncomfortable almost because it makes you think like, I don't know my own mind, mm. you know, I have my own reasonings for why I do things. And turns out like someone else can predict that I will behave the opposite as right. to what I, I mm-hmm. think that I will behave. This is Robin Hanson's book. I yeah. mean, that, that, that book, uh, the elephant in the brain, I can't recommend enough because, um, in some sense, it is a deeply cynical analysis of human behavior, but it's also accurate in yeah. some way because the basic insight of that book is that uh, we are very good at lying to ourselves. And the reason we are this way is because it's evolutionary, evolutionarily advantageous for animals like ourselves to believe our own bullshit in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So obviously what really got our ancestors' genes into the next situation was being high social status, marrying a mate with great genes and and also social standing and and all the right and, and all the rest. And almost by definition, our psychology is oriented towards doing this for ourselves. But that's a very selfish motive. So our prefrontal cortex basically acts like a press secretary for the actual operation of our brain, which is like the rest of the White House and the decisions that get made for self-interested, you know, reasons. And then the press secretary, which is your prefrontal cortex, tells your mouth what to say about mm-hmm. why you're doing this. Oh right? Everything has a selfless motive. Everything is because I'm, I'm just I'm just such a great guy and I want to do good in the world. Meanwhile, you can tease out certain differences. Well, if that were true, you'd behave this way. But but you're actually behaving as if you were kind of a more self-interested actor. And um, that that's true to a degree that is uh, pretty upsetting. And um, like I said, could be seen as, as cynical, but it's nevertheless the case. Like we're all kind of being press secretaries for ourselves. And again, it's best if you actually believe your own bullshit I know, because because most of I think most people are not like great liars so it's much better if you're able to convincingly give your story about why you're doing what you're doing and even um, do you know do you guys know about these these, these split brain experiments yeah, yeah yeah I was about to say that yeah they're they're wild tell me okay so this is another another way to see this so uh, they used to do this uh, um, procedure on on patients where they would split the corpus callosum, which is what connects the left brain and the right brain. They would do this, I think, to cure, not there schizophrenia. Were seizures, seizures, there, there seizures. Was, there was some kind of okay, disorder so this, but this was that could be made better if okay, you Okay, if this you wasn't like an experiment. No, on no, 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 no. There no. was okay. a problem and it okay. would be solved by, by this surgery. Okay. That's right. Um, and... And and I, as we know, I think is it the uh, is it the left brain that governs speech, or is the right brain right right brain that governs speech? I think right is the right, right is the left is more like creativity more. and okay. So mm-hmm. let's say let's just say for the sake of it doesn't matter. I think it's, actually. I think it's reverse, but yeah, I, okay, yeah. Go ahead. I think the left is like math. Yeah, the left is like right. Okay, the right is speech. Because I don't have any left brain at in all. In a very crude way, of, yeah, I think yeah. that's that's okay. So let's yeah. just say yeah. the right governs speech. 
and the left governs um, other things. And and also the left governs the right eye and the right governs the left eye. In most of us, this doesn't matter because the two halves of our brains are connected. They can share information. But if you've had that split, then information coming into your right eye actually only goes to your left brain and does not go to your right brain. So people have been able to do experiments where they show these patients with split brain uh, information in only only one side of their brain. And and so basically the, what, 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 what would happen in these experiments is they would show one half of the brain, the brain that the, the, the half of the brain that can't speak, they would show it some image or some piece of information or give it some direction like get up and go to the bathroom, right? And then the person would get up and go to the bathroom and the experimenter would ask, why are you going to the bathroom? And the other side of the brain, which was not told to go to the bathroom, would come up with some bullshit reason about why amazing. I just got up. Yeah, it's like wow. amazing. That it's the creepy. person totally believes, right? And <laughs> and this is only because you, you essentially have two people now in the brain, and one of them is coming up with convincing explanations all the time of what the other one is doing. And meanwhile, the person feels like he is saying true things. Now, I mean, so far as I know, none of these people felt bewildered by their own behavior. They just felt like they felt pretty normal. Yeah. And the the extent to which this is that we are able to do this all the time is like something else is deciding for you to do something and you're coming up with a reason, a post hoc explanation of your behavior afterwards um, that always paints you as being a coherent and kind and generous and relatable person. It's, yeah. it's a very... Um, you know, kind of dark and and skeptical and somewhat cynical view of of human beings, but that I think there's an element of truth to it, no doubt. So, like a a more positive perspective of the same thing, mm-hmm. instead of viewing it as necessarily selfish, which I think what what Robin Hanson does, which is which it is, it is mm-hmm. selfish, but it's also just like pro social, right? Like, because mm-hmm. in order to survive, we can't. It's not just we're not just engaging with the universe, but uh, we're, you know, each other, we're, we're engaging with each other and each other, like our social environment, that's our best bet for survival for mm-hmm. like a whole host of things. So it's important to always be, you know, vibing with the group alongside seeing objective reality. Oh yeah. Um, so, you know, I think there's so, so much of these, you know, uh, like class and, you know, like signaling and all this stuff. It's just, b- Pro-social behavior has gone wrong, you know, like gone, like become too, too deranged. Well, it's been taken out of a natural environment. Yeah. It's been funneled into distorting technology. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of it. So what do you mean by that? Expand on that. What what do you mean? So like uh, pro-social behavior distorted by technology. Getting along to go along. Or, or even recognizing, like, so we we monitor, say, we monitor our social environment all the time, mm-hmm. um, and we're this is mostly a good thing, you know. And we we see what other what other people think, um, we hear the di- different opinions, and we like 
take all those different opinions and figure out what, what we think about it, what mm-hmm. we think about it or what the correct thing to think might be. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, other people are not stupid in a normal environment. They're like, there's a zebra there. There's a you know lion there. Like that's probably, that's a good thing to pay attention to. That's a good thing to know. Um, and it's good to pick up that information from your social environment and to constantly be monitoring. But now we have Facebook, which introduces a level of like social monitoring that is insane. Mm. It's not helpful. It's actually harmful because we are hearing the nitty gritty political opinions of everybody around us. Mm -hmm. And we are conforming ourselves to those opinions. Yeah, And you're not even reacting to reality. You're reacting to a simulacrum of reality. And it's just like a hall of mirrors and it just more and more degrees removed. Even worse, like you're you're reacting to a slice of reality that's been algorithmically chosen to like engaged to, to maximize your engagement, yeah. which could yeah. mean pissing you off the most or, or, or confirming what you deeply believe the most. Yeah. So it's like a deeply biased sample of reality yeah. that you're being fed yeah. every day. So, yeah. So there's a crazy, there's something about technology in particular that's, that's deranging our like social instincts in mm-hmm. a way that is departing from objective reality mm-hmm. in a kind of a frightening way. I think the gender issue is a, a good example of yeah. all of that, but we won't touch it. <laughs> or or yeah, or will we? No. But it's you know it's it's a frightening thing. At some point, we're going to have to hit reality again, right? Mm. At some point, we're going to engage. We're going to go too far, and it's going to become a problem. Do you think, or is it just going to get worse and worse? I mean, when it comes to like the like the gender stuff, um, what you're starting to see in the UK in other countries where they're starting to push back. Um, Clinicians oh, are starting in, in to, Europe, they're, yeah. yeah, they're starting to be like, there are actually, this is not this, this like transition is not something it's ex- an experimental process. Mm. We don't know uh, what we're dealing with on the other end, the medical issues involved, the psychological issues involved. So we don't know exactly how effective it is. Mm-hmm. So they're starting to come back into reality after only after uh, reality made itself, you know, it presented itself in a form that could not be argued with or like hushed away, mm-hmm. you know, cause you had piles and piles of young people who were like, I know, but I wonder if even if on the clinical level, this kind of treatment ceases to be, or at least is not as common, there's still going to be a whole theoretical landscape yeah. and people are going to dig in even harder. Right. It's like, yeah. okay, well maybe I can't get puberty blockers mm-hmm. or cross sex hormones, but that means I'm going to, this is going to be even more constructed. Yeah. Like I'm going to well, take what this. Do you mean it's well, be more like, if, okay. So if transition, if, if I can't transition because the clinic doesn't offer that anymore, mm-hmm. I'm still going to identify as transgender, but I'm going to like dig in all the harder mm-hmm. at, on the saying, social like, I identify. Yes. I identify with this, yeah. my theoretical self-concept I'm going to impose that upon the world even harder. So I feel like it could go either way. Yeah. Uh, To the extent that institutions depart from, like, it cannot be checked by reality. Like those institutes, especially like humanities, like the the aspects of academia, whole fields in academia. (laughs) Right. That are that there's no check. And no point does it have to be, does it have to measure itself against. Right. The building is not going to fall down because Mm -hmm. the humanities department decides that something is real versus something else. Yeah. This is, I think, one of my favorite writers, Thomas Sowell. Listeners to my podcast will not be surprised. One of his uh, books is called Intellectuals and Society. And I think one of the undervalued insights from that book and and others have made it as well. I think Paul Johnson has made this insight too, is that 
um, intellectuals and commentators, people like us, don't really pay a personal price for false predictions or for false statements. <laughs> no, we're not going to kill anybody. Yeah. Probably. Whereas like any, any average um, like food cart owner on the street in New York, um, a person of much lower status than any of us who in some sense is valued less by society pays an extreme price for being wrong about what people want to eat and for changes in the market and for changes in prices pays an immediate and swift price for mm-hmm. error. Mm-hmm. Or could Whereas intellectuals, yeah, yeah. if their food yeah. yes. is not yeah. fresh, if they make an error in judgment about yeah. what they can serve, they could kill somebody. That's right. Yeah. Whereas the, the incentives, uh, in some sense, I think incentives are more important than intelligence in terms of getting things right and getting things wrong. Like if you, if you told me I was going to get punched in the face um, by Conor McGregor every time I got a fact wrong about the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I could be much dumber than I am and probably get things right even a higher percentage of the time just because of how deeply I would be emotionally tied to getting things right. Yeah. But intellectuals, the, basically the, the, the incentive structure – is is connected to gaining status and that has only a very tenuous connection to saying what is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually wrote about this on my Substack. Yeah. Um like this almost exact same thing. Um but when it came to but the the topic I was focusing on was lab leak mm. and like how suddenly it's become an okay thing to mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Um but it it sort of veered off into a discussion of uh, the the reliability of public intellectuals, like mm-hmm. or, or just like the the idea of a public intellectual, yeah. you know, I mean, you you are performing to some degree. It, it you can't just say things that are perfectly true. You are incentivized to say things that feel true, that you know fit in into the the framework of of your audience and what they expect, or maybe you, you push the envelope a little bit, you know, you're edgy, but Mm -hmm. you can't be too edgy. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, there's a line that you can't go too far, um, you know, uh, South of, because if you do, then you're a quack, Mm -hmm. you're not respectable anymore. Um, and suddenly your opinions don't matter. And I think that we saw that with COVID and it was really frustrating to see people who were just discussing, hey, this is a possibility, like the lab leak is a possibility, mm-hmm. and for them to be labeled as quacks. And mm-hmm. I was one of those people. I remember I was trying to have Me these too. kinds of conversations oh, I, with I my had, friends. Yeah. Oh, well, you were allowed to talk about lab leak for like three weeks. For, yeah. After and the then pandemic. all of a sudden, <laughs> yes. all, well, it's because it, it was Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton talked about it as a, a realistic possibility. He had a, if you look back to what he said, it was mm. like totally, it was totally reasonable, mm-hmm. you know, c- completely in line with like reality, actually. But when he said it, he was like a fascist and a racist well, and, and whatever Trump and all this stuff. And then it Trump was, agreed. Uh, it was, and, yeah. and so it was it became untouchable because the the wrong people held that opinion. Um, and if you held it, you signaled that you were deranged. See, yeah. I don't, you know, you were quack. See, this, had this lowered deranges yourself. me because it's yeah, like the yeah. most, uh, this is, this is Occam's razor. Yeah. Is it not? Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, like, no, it's, it totally is. Uh, and I think it's being, uh, it's now being, it's, I, I, I heard the energy department, which I'm not sure why they have an yeah, opinion on it. Yeah, but that's just the energy department, the energy, man. But, but Who cares? But it's, but it's an arm of the government. But is the first yeah. real yeah, like yeah. validation right. at that level. I know. Whereas a year ago, I talked about this on my podcast. I think I gave it like a 70 or 80 chance percent 
uh, percent chance of being true, like about a year ago. And I would get some comments and, oh, it's a shame, Coleman, you've, you've gone down it. the conspiracy. I had gone down the rabbit hole two years ago. And it was, uh, people were like, oh my God, you're Coleman you're crazy. What are you? You're yeah. lurch to the right. You're I, right. I find now. it amazing exactly. when people still say they think, oh, oh, a 60% probability. Like, mm-hmm. how about 99.9%? But what do I know? But they'll what they will say now, because you can always justify your stance, like look back and say, well, back then it wasn't so clear. Back then it was crazy. Now uh, we know so much yeah. more. What has changed? Nothing's changed. I wonder about yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, I, I didn't give it any thought until I read that book Viral by uh, Matt Alina Ridley. Alina Chan. She's, I had her Alina on my Chan, podcast. Which is, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been out for over a year. Yeah. It's been out for a while now. And ever since then, I've given it a, given it a much higher than 50% chance uh, of being true. Um, and I think... <laughs> You know, as time goes on, it, it probably just becomes more and more likely. But, you know, I, I'm not I shouldn't spout off because I don't really know too much. about. I don't vi- understand the people who but... say it doesn't matter. That's oh, the other no, thing. No, that's a lot, a lot of people absurd. say, well, why a do you care? Why that, do you that's care? Absurd. A lot of people said that. I remember I that's got absurd. that from the because when I when I presented Marshall the evidence, they'd be like, it doesn't actually it doesn't matter. You know what matters? Like people are dying from covid like, and then absolutely don't you want to understand to... where it came from so you understand what it is that, that it's just mind blowing yeah. also to prevent this from happening exactly. in the future right like if it came from wildlife to human uh directly that that prescribes one whole path of reforms towards yeah. preventing the next pandemic yeah. given that so many seem to come from you know bats in in china and and so forth but if it came from a lab that was doing gain of function research partly funded by, by us by right. that's the thing is it's not a xenophobic make, point if you want to hate on the um, on the US government this is your this is your baby go with it, it. Right. Yeah. it's and there's yeah. even i mean it, 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 it's uh None. It doesn't require conspiracy thinking to see that Fauci actually vocally defended in print, as either New York Times or Washington Post, I forget, in the in the early 2010s, vocally defended in print gain of function research from other virologists who said, "Look, this is too dangerous. We should not be yeah. intentionally engineering viruses to 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 be more." Fauci said, "No, no, 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 no. You don't understand. This is crucial, vital research. I know it seems dangerous, but we have to fund you it." Can't and do say, it anyway. You can't use that word. You can't say Fauci. You, you can't, can't say talk gain about of function. It. You can't say gain I of said function. gain of function at a at a dinner party recently, and they looked at me like, uh, "Like, You're oh, just, what are you yeah, on Fox that, News? That's yeah. the only place I've heard that term used." Yeah, <laughs> what's going to be next yeah you yeah. know deny the holocaust <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah or to conflate that the lab leak is the same thing as a deliberate lab that's leak. right you know right. Like, why would they leak it no who, who thinks they leaking leak? it why would deliberately you, two people that think they leaked it on their own country that is truly yeah. conspiratorial no, that's yeah. bananas yeah that's that's bananas but it, it was it was a very like a, interesting sleight of hand to just say oh you're right. saying that why would they ever so, do that? right like, so what you're saying stupid. is yeah it it also it makes a serious point about the safety of labs. Yeah. So when I was at, um, when I was in college, I, I was dating a girl who worked in a BSL three lab. Mm. BSL three is, it's like the, the security system for labs. And, um, a lot of the research at the Wuhan Institute was of Virology three, right? was, was like three at the highest, but like even a lot of it actually was done lower. Yeah. The state of the BSL-3 lab at Columbia was such that the girl I was dating just, like, let me in there to, like, show mm. show 
to like show me around. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> could have done anything. It was like, she showed me like the rat, the lab, the mice they worked with. Yeah. Let wow. me, it like, she must I had have really no, liked you. Gear yeah. on or nothing. No yeah. gear on, no nothing. It was just like, it was a total free for all. That's a BSL three Columbia university, like serious biomedical research happening there. And like things spill out of these places. They're like, workplaces right it's yeah, like really. human errors it's it's only as secure as the boss of this particular place um you know wants it to be and it's only as secure as how sleep deprived the the worker is that day and it's um it's amazing that these things weren't taken sufficiently into account by the the people who really argued for gain of function research yeah it really matters i think know. it was because i mean that there was a lot of politics just like swirls around in a way and becomes like very feverish. That's one of the things that I think is new that is like technology driven. And that I feel like the narrative of what I'm supposed to think, the correct thing to think moves very, very fast, faster than I think that the average person who is not terminally online like us can mm -hmm. keep up. You know, they think they wouldn't know that now you can't say gain of function or you could you could have said it, you know, five months ago, but you can't say it now. Can't even utter it now. I think non online people live in a kind of a different world mm -hmm. and they're way, way far behind in terms of what the correct thing to think is. And that's just another way that we're seeing this weird bifurcation of this kind of elites social space and mm -hmm. like elite people who think in a very particular way who are speaking to each other in these hyper like hyper connected um like fast you know fast fast ways and then you have everybody else mm. who has to go to a job who can't be on twitter all day <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. um being like what is literally what is going on um it's so easy in this space to have a political actor that can take advantage of the situation <laughs> In what way? You know, like to have a smart Trump, you know, imagine right. if Trump had somebody yeah. who had the low, Trump has cunning, you know, mm -hmm. he has, he intuitively understands something about like a common man, you know, like mm -hmm. some, some like, oh yeah, like on, underbelly. on and, some animal level, some animal primal level. level, but he's just disorganized. I mean, right. this, our saving grace was, it was complete chaotic dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Right. So imagine if that yeah. kind of like animal cunning was met with like an actual like competent competence person. um yeah. at the top you can have a very scary individual that can win over a lot well, of people that steve that, bannon that yeah well who can win over a lot of people and and then they the you know this this sort of chattering class wouldn't even know what to do mm. you know we wouldn't even know how to speak to these people how to come down to their level how to understand their like the world that they're living in you know because we've just we're so so separated yeah no i think the uh, the elite definitely failed the Trump test and the media failed the Trump test in, in my view, especially towards the beginning. Um, basically, uh, a big part of my entry into thinking about politics was that I was as blindsided as almost everyone I know when Trump won. Deeply blind. I was so blindsided, in fact, that me and my friend who who is half Mexican, we cooked a Mexican dinner on the night that a night of the election to celebrate Trump's loss before it happened. Of course. That's how deluded and arrogant we were, right? Anyway, so Trump Trump wins. My model of reality is broken because I could see how a Romney could beat an Obama. I could see how a McCain even could could beat a, a Clinton. I could not see for the life of me how any critical mass of people could find Trump attractive. So I made a horrible prediction. 
And I think like, well, like any, any good rational person, I, I realize my model of reality must be very flawed to make a pre- prediction this bad. There must be things I'm missing. And the only explanation on offer from left media was there is a sudden unexplained rise in white supremacy and racism between 2012 when we elected Barack Hussein Obama for the second term right. and 2016 well, when we elected Trump. it was because of Obama. Trump. It was a white lashing. It a was, white lashing that yeah. took several years to so, somehow didn't manifest in his second term. Did He didn't get right. trounced in his second term. It somehow waited like it was dormant. Li- yeah. it dormant. lies yeah. in dor- dormancy for, for eight yeah. years and then suddenly um, came up out of nowhere. And um, and that was and, and not only that, some of the same counties that went for Obama twice are going for mm-hmm. Trump. Mm-hmm. Some of the same voters uh, that that Obama won over are now going for Trump. Mm-hmm. So the explanation is a sudden massive spike in white supremacy. That seemed to me to be very implausible. Or misogyny, massive misogyny yeah. against Hillary Clinton. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so that seemed to me to be to be not not plausible. Um and and I became curious like what is it that I'm I'm missing? And I think the the biggest thing I was missing was the degree to which people hate elites and the degree to which elites um don't make an effort to understand what is outside of their bubble, right? We all live in bubbles and that's okay. Um, I don't think it can actually be avoided. No one can live a statistically random life, you know, encountering a, a representative yeah, sample of, of the world. That yeah, no, Nobody insane making. could live yeah. that way. It's fine. But if you're in a position of power, whether that is in the mainstream media or in government, you you have a responsibility, I think, to take an interest in understanding the ways in which the the um, the walls of your bubble may be distorting the screen of your bubble, may mm-hmm. be distorting the outside world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and elites have perpetually make a um, make such little effort to do this. And I think that that, as you say, it creates an opportunity for politicians that understand that divide very well and very intuitively to to um, get support way out of proportion to actually how good they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even even somebody like a politician that comes from the elite who understands that mm-hmm. the elite are only speaking to each other and for each other. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that we're, we're trying to impress each other as much as possible and get on top of like the social ladder um, or prestige ladder of our very elitist occupation, whatever. Um, and then if you have somebody from within the circle who understands this is what's going on here, um, you know, I understand how this works. So I also understand what buttons to push, mm-hmm. um, to get them going. I think George W. Bush was like that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, his, his evangelical side, just, he was, he was an absolute elite, yeah. right? I mean, mm-hmm. could not be more elite than yeah. the Bush family, yeah. mm-hmm. but he had a kind of populist flavor to him because he was liked he was, with the, the, the average person. Liked yeah. Him. And he was also talking about God a lot and yeah. Jesus. And at that time that was a very populist kind of sensibility. Yeah. 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 And now you have politicians saying Latinx, like that's a real thing. <laughs> yeah. That in particular, a lot of people make fun of it as like this extreme, like it's this extreme thing. You're nut picking, you know, when you point out the Latinx usage and how it's increased, 
yes, it's not picking, but there are also interesting reasons to believe that good reasons to believe that such an extreme case, such an extreme departure mm-hmm. from reality illustrates something really important about what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, like almost like where there's smoke where there's fire, but it's almost like there's fire, you know, like in this, mm-hmm. in this tiny place, like something is going well, on. There, people are whispering in their ears. Yeah. I mean, Joe Biden is just has people whispering in his ear. Oh, t- talk to Dylan Mulvaney. Yeah. This is stunning and brave. Yeah. Yeah. Say Latinx. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's terrifying. It's terrifying that they, then, then there's just like, a, okay, yeah, sure. And there's is, no check on it. There's no, right. literally no adults in the room. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then that's what happens with the, these campaigns is, I mean, I remember with the Latinx issue because I, I'm half Puerto Rican and I have a lot of family that I spent a lot of time with as a kid in, in the Bronx um, that were working class. When I got to, and, and I, I was, I was almost fluent at Spanish when I was probably 11 or 12 years old and I've kind of receded a bit since then. But when I um, got to Colombia and suddenly people were saying Latinx, I thought that was hilarious because I could just imagine how, like how funny that would be to my Puerto Rican extended family mm-hmm. and how seriously kids seem to be taking it like as if that's what the Hispanic community is asking to be called. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that, that just seemed very emblematic to me of the different, you know, everyone going to work for the Biden administration, for example, is, is likely coming disproportionately from places like, like Colombia, where such things are, are, are taken seriously and alleged to be the desires of the community in question. Right. It's always presented as if this is a bottom up demand yeah. mm-hmm. for recognition and respect mm-hmm. from the from the Latino community <laughs> yeah. in, in America to be called this way. They are done with the gender binary of their beautiful language that that's goes gendered. back. That's <laughs> meticulously <laughs> and fully gendered and beautifully gendered uh, for hundreds or thousands of years that, you know, so uh, and people fall for this stuff. I mean, in, in that with that particular case, I wasn't going to fall for it because I had a I had a real life connection to that community, so it's easier to not fall for the bullshit in that sense. But on the other hand, there's lots of other Hispanic kids at, at Columbia that had a real life connection and had as many aunts and uncles who would laugh at that word as I did, but nevertheless, really took it seriously too. So. In, in but do you think sp- they went back home and used that word with their like Latin <laughs> family in that obnoxious way? Probably, because it's yeah, a way of striving. Because it's but it's but it's also class striving. Yeah, mm, yeah. That's it's right. a it's a social exactly yeah. it's a social it yeah. signifier. It's a class signifier. Yeah. So I'm sure that I'm sure they went back to their parents and were insufferable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the yeah, way that right. you know you come back from your junior year abroad with a foreign accent. Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's an right. affect. Yeah, I think that it's the kinds of people who who like absorb these kinds of norms, I would never articulate it that way, but these are obviously the, the, the values and worldview and viewpoints and, um, uh, and signifiers of elite liberal whites. Specifically, it's a white, it's a, it's a white elite, you know? And yeah. I think that's, that's one of the more interesting developments, um, of our political era to see mm-hmm. w- like educated liberal whites turn so like, 
like so so into the Democratic Party and become this like very powerful base within the Democratic Party. They're going to run the Democratic Party. There's no I mean, they are running the Democratic Party. And what will that what will that do to what used to be an important, you know, layer of, you know, Democratic politics, right. which was like class and issues mm-hmm. yeah. of class. unions and grassroots movements. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the uh, I have a couple friends that never tire of pointing out that when when Biden won the reelection from Trump, he didn't get rid of any of the the tax breaks and tax cuts that that people were crying bloody murder about when Trump implemented them. Um, and Chuck Schumer didn't change the salt tax for New Yorkers and like all, all, all this stuff. None of it happened because it's actually not necessarily the Democratic Party is no longer the party of the working class. Yeah. It's the party of the college educated. It's focusing on student debt versus medical debt. And minorities. You know, like yeah. it's, there's if you if you're talking about debt relief, yeah. there's debt that's held by marginalized, quote unquote, people. And yeah. then there's debt that's held by people who tend to do better off. Yeah. Um, and which do they choose? Which do they obsess over? Which do they talk about all the time and campaign about all the time? Because they know that that's their base and that's who that's who's worth pandering to. And right. the interesting thing is, is that it's actually a very powerful base. Like this is money, you know, mm-hmm. like these, these are the people well, with the money um, and it, it, they're going to blast the airwaves with with this, um, you know, like with, with the, the ideology that they that they share and the values that they share. Um, and it's going to be strange. Yeah, strange indeed. Um, any other topics we should hit before? Yeah, I think we we've got zero for a seconds while. left. Uh oh. Yeah, I think uh, we're. I think we we covered yeah, a lot. That I mean, was, we didn't talk about. Uh, yeah, I gender. did. I I do want to. It, it's interesting because because you have like that, um, like biracial background. Yeah, I wanted to ask you who you like. Which side do you identify as biracial? <laughs> like what's or is there like um, a prominent like there's some. Yeah, interesting. I guess so. So, like, as a kid, pre-awareness of politics or culture, I would say I'm half black, half Puerto Rican, mm-hmm. in no particular order. Mm-hmm. I spent probably like as a young kid, I spent more time with the Puerto Rican half of my family, mm-hmm. and as a teenager, I spend more time with the black half of my family. Mm-hmm. Overall, is probably comparable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just felt like I had that like split identity. Like it, it was a clear difference in my mind. Like everyone spoke Spanish on one side and everyone was American, black American on the other side. And it was like culturally very different, but I felt like I was in both. Um, I did notice as I got older that more and more, and I think this is like as a result of social feedback, because like identity can be partly the, what you put out there, but partly what you're getting back Mm -hmm. is that I got back that I was black. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, like just black. So I think I I started subconsciously being more likely to just check the black box Mm -hmm. at at certain points. And I may have also been getting feedback that to be black is really to be a huge, to have a huge advantage Mm -hmm. in some ways, uh, when you're applying to colleges, for example, um, so, so I get. Does that answer the question? I, yeah, I, yeah. I guess no, I, I, I think it's it's, it's, not quite it's, it's interesting. Because, I was thinking yeah. about like our vice president uh-huh. and how she's she's black. She's like also Indian, she's South yes, Asian. Yeah. Right. Um, and the latter half of her identity is just like invisible, it's never like, discussed. Yeah. yeah. Um, and part of it might be that she kind of looks. She looks 
black-ish. More black than Indian, I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that. And her yeah. sister looks very Indian, which is interesting. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Do you know she was in... um. She was in the same economics club as my father in college. Interesting. They both oh, went really? to Howard and there's a graduate <laughs> picture of their club. It's like eight people. Ugh. It's like a tiny club. Of my dad and Were Kamal. they friends? No, they weren't. Okay. That, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it is. Cool. Well, when she's president, um, maybe you'll have an in. Maybe. I don't think she's ever going to be no, president. No, oh my god! It's the, like it's like the Hillary problem, oh, but it's the, worse but actually. Worse, yeah, worse. she's she's much worse than Hillary. I think in terms of her, her gaffes and her inability to string a coherent sentence yeah. sentences together sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Hillary was seems it, well. Hillary has a gravitas like a, yeah. at, at the end of the day that uh, Kamala just. Yeah. It's, she's giggly. The la- yeah. I mean, it's nervous laughter. Well, yes, Hillary yes, could be giggly, giggly right. too, and but, that, but that was and that was like the lowest points of her public appearances right. was when she tried to be like lighthearted, fun, but yeah. you know, yeah. it's like pretending right. to be yeah. silly. That's yeah. right. right. It, it was yeah. and it was clearly a pretense, yes. and that's what rubbed people the wrong way. Kamala, she just seems like genuinely nervous and kind of unprepared and not not suited to the task. She just, a little bit. and she was perfectly suited to her previous task. This is the yeah. thing: is I don't understand why people want this job. Mm-hmm. I always thought this about Obama. Well, like, because it the, puts you in line. Oh, the, you mean the vice presidency? Yeah, or? like the presidency was. I felt was like beneath him with Obama. Like he should have been huh. on the Supreme Court. Uh, it's not. It's the. Being the president or the vice president, it's not like a job for an intellectual. It's a job for somebody who is a performer and is a horse trader, like a politician, like Mm. Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the elites, that's another thing, is we want people who look like us and think like us to be in leadership positions. Like Mm -hmm. we loved Obama because it was like a walking NPR interview who also happened to be black. Well, yeah, yeah, but but here's a a whole package. She really was. Yeah, I mean, he's a once in a lifetime talent in the sense that he is exactly what elite Americans want to elect. But he also has genuinely no air of condescension towards non-elites and towards the working class. He's he's like a unicorn in being able to genuinely appeal to the elite and to the non-elite. Like if if you saw that speech he gave a couple months ago where he talks about uh, Social Security and how you know people have the chapped hands to show that they've earned their social security gave me goosebumps but it also really appealed to people who have injuries cuz they've like worked mm-hmm. they work jobs with their bodies their whole mm-hmm. lives um and um and and he is somehow able to to walk that line and and, and appeal to both in a way that almost no politician. But he was a great candidate. Really I'm not sure he was such a great politician. Obama's a perfect candidate. He was mm-hmm. a perfect candidate. What do you, what do you mean? Oh, what? you mean as opposed to a governor? Yeah. yeah. I don't think that he really. I always felt like he wasn't actually interested in the job. Yeah. Like hmm. he was put forth because he was such an irresistible candidate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I, I I always I always felt that uh, the job he was wasted on him. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. There yeah. was just, I think a lot of people could see a little bit of themselves in Obama. You know, there was a, sm- there was a part of the country that couldn't at all, mm-hmm. but I think maybe that this was part of his, like, uh, you know, his skill at creating a, you know, a, a kind of person that everyone can see something about 
you know, about themselves in mm-hmm. him. Like for me, I liked, I liked that he was like this third culture kid, even mm-hmm. though he pretended not to be like, mm-hmm. he was a very, like, I'm, what does I'm third black, culture mean? but he, it, he, uh, people who basically they grow, there's the idea that you'd grow up in multiple cultures, multiple uh-huh. you know, immigrant so kids, of like two like cultures, third, third culture kid, or yeah. you live yeah. in like another country or you moved I around see. a lot, but he, you know, grew up in like all kinds of different places mm-hmm. um, and was exposed to a lot of different kinds of living and mm-hmm. lifestyles and values. Um, and so those are like third culture people that don't gotcha. have this, that cosmopolitan kind of culture, kind of, mm-hmm. but they don't really have a whole set of anything. Um, and I felt that intuitively about Obama, mm. um, even though he did make a point to emphasize his, his like, Blackness. Yeah. Oh, when he started talking with the black cadence, it was cringe, don't you think? I don't know. I, I was I was twelve years old at the time. Okay. I didn't think it was cringe, right. but I, I don't I don't think my my phony detectors are quite as sensitive as yours. I just, it's like, dude, you don't talk like this. I felt that he was emphasizing it. I don't know if it, if I felt it was phony because there is an extent to which. You do speak differently. Like the code switching thing is real. Like I do speak differently with my mother than I do with you. You know, um, the kind of inflection. I, I, I you know, it's just, it's, that's a common thing. So maybe. Her mother. <laughs> I want you to talk. Yeah. Just talk um, that way to me. No. Really you cringe. You speaking Indian Indian to you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. We probably okay, have we, to stop. We've gone actually. out. Yeah. yeah we're, we're getting a knock. Time. Okay. Okay. Well, this was, oh, this yeah. is fun. Yep. Yep. Cool. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you. Awesome. For coming Thank on my you. show, and you're welcome for coming on yours. Yeah, this is, <laughs> whose show is it anyway? We'll Who's let the show? audience decide. There yes. we go. Well, well, we'll let them decide who won. Yeah, really. who yeah, won? This who has won been this? a debate. There we go. This um, whole time. <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Coleman. Right. This thank was great. You. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. That was our interview with Coleman Hughes. It was so good. I don't think we need bonus content. Yeah, I don't think we do. It was uh, quite long, too. So it's so a reminder to everybody, if you enjoyed it, um, we enjoyed doing it, please subscribe on you know wherever you get you know your podcast and rate us and review us um we're on youtube now um if you are just an audio listener just a reminder that you can see our faces if you go on on youtube and are perfectly coiffed Coiffed. i think it's coiffed uh coiffed coiffed is that how you say it no you don't say it like that's the american pronunciation megan yeah no you're much more coiffed than i am i'm coiffed my hair is problematic um, yeah. Yeah. So you can see our lovely faces um, and uh, awkward gestures throughout our conversations. Um, if you go to our, our, our YouTube and it's just just type in a special place in hell and you'll find it and you can subscribe there. Uh, we have our website as well, which is a special place in hell which is very exciting Org that means we're intellectual. Oh, for sure. Yes. You are definitely making the world a better place if you go to our website and um, enable us by supporting us in um, one of the many ways we, we now offer or, or could have fed them but instead it will go to our hair quaffing <laughs> yeah uh, but that's a good cause so yes um, so they can you know support us on the Substack, all of the usual places and if you're confused you can go to a special place in hell.org and learn everything about us so that's that All right, we'll see you in hell. All right. Thanks, everyone.